my name is Sheila and I am a Connect Group Leader here at HDBB and a student at St. Paul's Theological College. I know that I'm two days too late, but I am going to say it anyway. Merry Christmas, everybody! I hope that you managed to still have a good Christmas this year, a good and meaningful one, even though I know that it probably looked a little bit different than usual. I know that at the very least, I have enjoyed watching all of our HDBB Christmas services over the last few weeks. And if you haven't managed to catch any of them yet, you have to absolutely catch up on our HDBB YouTube channel. Well, here we are. The last Sunday of 2020. How time has flown. And I wonder how you feel today or just in this year-end period. You know, the other day, my friend sent me this unfortunately amusing because it's true photo. It's just going to come up on the screen. I do really sympathize with the copywriter for that text. Well, but to be fair, they wouldn't have known. They couldn't have. And we couldn't have. You know, at this time last year, I remember we were all looking towards 2020 in anticipation, in excitement, and in hope. And I don't know where you are at now, maybe the year uh, you've been through or the word that you would use to describe it. Maybe it was your best year yet, or maybe it wasn't at all. Maybe you experienced great loss this year, or maybe you experienced great blessing. Maybe you discovered new things to love and enjoy, or discovered surprising things that you missed or longed for. And perhaps, or more likely, it was a blend of all of the above. And I don't know where you're at or the year that you've had, but I can tell you this, that you are watching this today, right now, at the end of 2020, means that you are a whole lot more resilient than you ever thought you could be or that you could have ever known. It has been a strange and challenging year, and resilience is a direct product of having gone through such times. Trials are not foreign to mankind. You know, my, my company, we recently had a town hall and the, our board of directors, they were just trying to encourage all of us and they were saying that, you know, the human race is no stranger to challenging times. And myself being quite young and inexperienced, I appreciated hearing them talk about how their generation has weathered through multiple recessions and plenty of challenging times in the past. And yes, perhaps this year has been the most widespread and intense challenge yet, but this too shall pass. The pandemic may have been at the forefront of our 2020, but facing trials is not limited to this time. We all know what it means to go through challenges, as well as we know that there too exist seasons of great joy and blessings. In a moment, I'm going to read a passage from the book of Revelation. It is the last book of the Bible, which I thought was pretty apt, given this is the last Sunday of this year. And my prayer really is that through this passage and the message today, you will gain a greater certainty of Christ in whom you have placed your faith. But before we dive in, a quick note on the book of Revelation. It is often thought to be a difficult book to understand because of its symbolic language. However, we know from the introduction of the book that the author did not mean for it to be a mystery, but to be understood, as many of the symbolisms used was aimed to be understood by readers who would have been familiar with the Old Testament writings of similar nature. 
And so the gist of it is this. Revelation is a letter. It's addressed to the seven churches in Asia Minor at the time to speak into their respective situations to encourage them to hold on to their faith by remembering Jesus' victory on the cross. These seven churches were facing trials and temptations of many kinds. There was severe persecution, false teachings, the temptation of material gain, and the prevailing culture that challenged their faith. And the pursuit of fullness of life in Christ was at stake. Which, when we then reflect, describes timeless challenges that the church has faced all throughout the ages and even today. Through addressing the seven churches at the time of writing, this letter addresses the church today as well, pointing us to find life and find hope in Christ. And where we find ourselves in the passage today is in chapter 5. And the structure of this book, it's absolutely beautiful. And I believe it's absolutely intentional as well. And we'll talk about this a little bit more later. But the author, uh, known to be John, he starts the book with the letters to the seven churches. So these seven letters, calling them to persevere in their faith, though it might be difficult. But immediately after the last letter, we get this sudden change of scene in chapter 4, uh, where the author shifts to describe this remarkable vision of heaven with God on his throne. And it's a parallel that he's drawing to the ruling Roman powers of the time or any existing authority or power that we experience on earth. This is an alternative vision of the one who is really in charge. And in the scene today, we see the introduction of Christ. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. The hymn here refers to God sitting on his throne. And the sealed scroll uh, that he's holding symbolizes, at the time, it would symbolize a legal document where only specific authorized people or persons are able to break the seal to unveil its contents. In this case, this scroll is thought to have held the, the messages from the Old Testament about how God's kingdom would fully come to pass on earth as it is in heaven. Let me continue in verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Then 
I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What a scene! There is a lot going on here in this passage, but I'd just like us to focus on two main parts of it. And the first is in verse 5 and verse 6. It reads, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne and circled by the four living creatures and elders. I want to ask you this question today. How big is your God? There is this famous phrase that sometimes goes around and it says, don't tell God how big your problems are, tell your problems how big your God is. But if I'm really honest, that's kind of hard, isn't it? It's hard in the moments when our faith in how big our God is gets shaken. And I wonder if you've experienced moments like that as you watch the world around you or even in your own life as you see sickness or politics or injustice. And perhaps if you dare admit, you have questions on your mind that causes your faith to sometimes be shaken. Questions like, where are you, God? Will God do anything about this? Or maybe sometimes even, can God do anything about this? It is important for our faith that we know with certainty who or what we are placing our faith in. The level of your faith is directly related to who you believe God to be. And actually, our level of faith in anything at all is determined by what we believe about it. Take, for example, this chair. What I believe about this chair will determine how comfortable I sit on it and whether I sit on it at all. If I believe that this chair can withstand my weight, I would sit down on it comfortably, I would relax into it, I may cross my legs and just enjoy the scene around me. Uh, if I'm feeling a little cheeky and extra confident in the potential of this chair, I might even lean back, I might even lean to the side and just not be worried at all. And if I needed to, you know, reach to the top of the shelf because I'm not particularly tall, I might even stand on it because I'm so secure and so confident in the chair's capability of withstanding my weight. But how I treat the chair, if I wasn't confident, would look really different. Well, first of all, I most definitely would not be standing on this particular chair. But also, if I were to need to sit on it, I'd be sitting in a much different way. I'd be really uncomfortable. I, I would be really cautious. I'd be looking around to see whether there's any uh, nails or, or screws that were loose. Um, I'd sit on it really lightly, even like barely at all. Um, I, I might even, you know, do the hover that you might do uh, at the public toilets here in KL. All because I wasn't confident in whether this chair could withstand my weight. 
the way I treat it is different and my security in it is different. And so it's the same with God. The level of faith that you are able to have in God is determined by how big and how powerful and just who you believe God to be. And we get those answers. We, we get our security in God by understanding who He is through what we are told and what we read in Scripture. And so we read in the passage that John is consoled by one of the elders there uh, in this vision, um, that there is one who is worthy to open the scroll and look inside. And the peculiar thing happens here. The elder says, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is also called the root of David. But when we see in verse 6, John then turns his view, and what he sees is not a lion, but he sees a lamb, the slain lamb of God. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I'm just trying to picture this scene, and I feel like it can have the potential to be quite anticlimactic. Um, I imagine it a little bit like the opposite of a Superman scene where um, it's a little bit disheartening and it's kind of like, oh, look, it's Superman. Oh, no, it's, it's, it actually really is a bird. And yet it is precisely in this tension, in this apparent disappointment that lies the greatest hope. The elders say, look, don't worry. It's the lion of Judah. And John turns and he sees the lamb. And these two uh, words, the lion and the lamb, they are both metaphors for Jesus. And, and this passage is significant for the strengthening of our faith for three main reasons from what we understand of this comparison between the lion and the lamb. The first, the lion of Judah, root of David, refers to the Old Testament messianic prophecies of the one who was to come to redeem Israel. They expected a king and a warrior, but instead they got the person of Jesus who willingly suffered and died as a redemptive act. He challenged their perspective on what the Messiah should and could look like. And I wonder how this plays out in your own life. Where have you expected to maybe see God's victories and God's promises play out? Or how have you expected to see that scene happen in your life? We read that the victory here is, is, is not in the triumph of a lion, it's not in the triumph of a king or a warrior, but the victory happened amidst trials, amidst the ups and downs in the life of this person of Jesus who did not look like what they expected. And I wonder if that brings hope to you today as you look around you. The second significance that we see in this passage is that the lamb, though slain, is standing where one might have expected it to be limp, sitting down, or lying down. As we draw this comparison to the life of Jesus again, it did not look good on the cross, and yet three days later, Jesus overcame death through his resurrection. This is at the heart of John's message of hope to the churches that he was writing to who were facing all kinds of trials and temptations. There is strength in the weakness. There is victory to be had amidst the challenges. There is breakthrough on the other side of the storm. But lastly, 
the hope that we can see in this passage, in this comparison between the lion and the lamb, is that this lamb was the one who was able to open the scroll. And as I said earlier, this scroll is, is, is this accumulation of the messages and the prophecies of the Old Testament of how uh, God's plans and God's uh, kingdom was going to come and reign here on earth. And it means that this slain lamb being able to open the scroll is a symbol of its divine authority to guide history into its conclusion. And this is the God that we place our faith in. This is the God who calls us into perseverance in the faith. He's not a God who, who doesn't know what's up. He doesn't, he's not a God who doesn't know how we feel when it's hard, uh, what it means to experience trials and temptations here on this earth. And to, and to really fully grasp this, we go back to the Gospels and we see the life of Jesus. And we see why he's paralleled to the lamb who is slain. We see his life that is filled with um, trials and temptations and suffering and, and, and hard times. But he overcame all of it. And it all peaks at the cross. It peaks at the cross because at the cross was his death and then his resurrection. And so when he calls us to persevere in our faith, it is really and truly because he is ultimately in control. God is in control of the story. Uh, no matter what it looks like, uh, no matter whether it meets our expectations or not, he is ultimately in control. And this is why I say that the arrangement of this book is really amazing because it starts with these letters it starts with these letters that speak to the churches then and today. And it says, persevere in your faith. Persevere in this journey. But then it then turns to give us this vision of why we are persevering and why we can have hope. Because we have a God who sits there in this amazing throne and he not only just sits up there, but he has experienced it all. He has overcome it. And then he calls us from up there. He says, persevere by what? By having faith in him who is in control. In Romans 8.28, we read that it says this, you know, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And throughout the story, throughout the book of Revelation, we see this theme. You know, Revelation, it can, it, like I said, it can seem strange. It can seem sometimes scary. But the, the, the best advice that I've got around reading Revelation is find Jesus in the passage. Find the lamb and what is he doing? And we can see that in all of it, the threat throughout all of it is that God is ultimately in control and God ultimately has the last say. And so when we put our faith in Him, He really is big enough to be above uh, what we see, above our trials, above our temptations, above um, the problems that we face here on earth. But really, how then should we respond? We see the magnificence of God. We see how big He is. Where does that leave us? And what do we do in response to that? And for that, we see the remaining of the passage. We pray and we worship because that draws us nearer to God. That helps us really see how God sees things. And that draws us to the source of our strength, of the source of our faith. And if you ever doubt that, you know, are your prayers heard? Is your worship heard? I find this really encouraging that we see in verse 8. It says that 
And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Your prayers are heard in heaven. Your prayers are there before God and he is listening to you. And we see that the way that all of these heavenly creatures then respond is they worship God because he is worthy of that worship. Through our prayers, we surrender our control to a God who is the one who is truly in control. And worship lifts up our eyes to see him for who he is and then see the situations around us for how he sees them. But also what they do is they help us to remember and internalize what it really means that Jesus Christ has died for us and has gone before us, has experienced all of the things that we have experienced and has overcome it all. And now in a moment, we are going to do, uh, we're going to have communion together, which is another way um, that we uh, can take a, take a moment to pause and remember all that God has done for us and what it means for our lives and for our faith.